everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. I am so excited to be interviewing the incredible and talented uh, Christos Gage. Uh, Christos, this is tall praise to begin with, but you are one of my very favorite writers, uh, one of the writers I look up to the most. And we'll talk a little bit about why that Thank is you. today, but I'm so happy to have you on the show, my friend. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm I'm very uh, very happy to be here. Uh, I appreciate that very much. Uh, now you and I, I don't know how much you remember me. I was on the Marvel uh, Handbooks team back in like the 2005 to 2012 era. Okay. Cool. During during Dark Reign and the Initiative and all of that stuff. And mm-hmm. you and I had regular email correspondence, and I got to meet you at San Diego Comic Con. Uh, once for just a few minutes, but I've uh, I've always loved. Uh, I used to read scripts that were incoming back in the days, and your mm-hmm. way of writing scripts was always one of my very favorites. I really looked oh, forward you. looked forward to your content every month. And I'm a big uh, obscure character guy, and you love an obscure character. <laughs> so that I do. It's uh, it's such a tremendous honor to have you on the show. We've tagged you in a few episodes as we've reviewed some of your comic books on my show, like uh, Gwen Stacy and uh, Spider Man X Men, because those are all Silver Age stories. Yes, yeah, that was those were. All, I love doing, uh, uh, you know, doing stuff that that calls back to those, uh, you know, those early stories. Uh, so let's begin a little with your origin story, if you will. I know your parents are writers and artistic. I know your wife is a writer. Uh, tell yep. people a little bit about your origin. Uh, well, let's see. Uh, I was born in New York in uh, 1971. My uh, parents are writers, although they are more on the, uh, they're journalists. Um, my father was a reporter uh, for the New York Times, um, my mother was a uh, sort of freelance uh, magazine uh, writer. She uh, they met in journalism school, um, and uh, I mean, I, there's not much to you know. I started reading comics when I was as soon as I could probably read. Um, I can't remember the first comic I ever read. I know one of the first ones I picked up was Amazing Spider-Man 161, where he fought Nightcrawler. It was a early new X-Men appearance and then picked up on Kenny X-Men 107. And then uh, I didn't pick up another X-Men for, um, I was more into like dinosaurs and monsters. So I would buy like Godzilla and Shogun warriors. Um, and then I did, I picked up uh, uncanny 139 uh, where Kitty pride joins the team. And then um, uh, days of future past came after that. And then I was just kind of hooked and I read it up until I don't know, sometime around 300 or so. Uh, And uh, then I went to film school where I met my wife, Ruth, and we began working together. Um, We wrote, uh, we started out writing movie scripts. Um, And, you know, writing movies can be very frustrating because even when you work, a lot of times the movies never get made. So uh, we sort of made a made career switch and shifted to tv and uh we wrote for law and order svu um uh, we wrote for a show called numbers uh we wrote for um the first season of uh, daredevil uh, yes yeah and um we wrote for hawaii 50 and uh and we've also written some um graphic novels together we wrote uh uh, Area 10 uh, for uh, Vertigo, which was a 
horror crime noir. And then we wrote uh, for Oni Press, um, The Line of Aurora, which is a uh, based on the true story of her ancestors, a group of people called the Waldensians. And, and that's uh, sort of a historical epic in the vein of Braveheart. So, um, yeah, we've done a whole lot of different stuff. And then I've also written video games. I knew the two of you uh, did uh, Captain Marvel together for a little while during the Civil yeah, War. That's right. Well. Yeah, that was fun to see your names together on that. Now, yeah, you know, and we did a um, we did a Wonder Woman uh, seventy seven story. So in the continuity of the TV show, your uh, your first Marvel work, if I'm calculating correctly, was Spider Man Unlimited twelve, where you did the villain on story with the big wheel. Is that right? Yes, that's right. With Mike McCone, who we later did Avengers Academy together. Yes, absolutely. That was 2005. Uh, and then, of course, Marvel kind of always starts you small. Then you jumped into Union Jack after that. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you get uh, initially into uh, Marvel Comics? So I had done Deadshot for uh, <clears throat> DC. Um, and the way I got that was I had uh, I had become friends with Jimmy Palmiotti, uh, met him at a convention, and, you know, we kept in touch. And uh, Ruth and I were going to be in New York for the shooting of an episode of uh, SBU and Jimmy was kind enough to set up a, a lunch with uh, Dan Dio. Uh, and I pitched him an idea that, that became the Deadshot miniseries. Sure. And he uh, he had me write up a pitch. I sent it in and he accepted it. I got kind of lucky because that was at a time when still there weren't very many people who worked in Hollywood also doing comics. It was like, I think maybe Kevin Smith and Josh Whedon were the only ones who had done it. And so it was still kind of like a new, interesting thing. Uh, so they they took me seriously, you know, uh, which was a mistake. And uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. They, uh, no, the, but they they sort of like were like, oh, you must know what you're doing. Um, so, uh, you know, so they they uh, bought the pitch and I did that miniseries. And then, um, you know, sometime after that came out, I was at a L.A. convention uh, I was signing at the DC booth and then Marvel was set up and I went over and started chatting with uh, Mark Panicia, who uh, Hank Canals introduced me to. I, ha I had already been talking to the Wildstorm guys at that point. Um, and uh, Mark introduced me to Tom Brevoort and uh, Tom had read Deadshot and liked it. And he said, um, you know, we've got this sort of tryout book for people who haven't worked for us before. And um spider uh you know spider-man unlimited and they also had x-men unlimited and it's basically the idea is to try out new writers uh new to marvel not necessarily new to writing sure um, sure and then artists it, it was also there to give artists work in between listen to that cat uh to give <laughs> artists work in between assignments when scripts weren't ready for them um so uh i uh pitched the the story about um you know a villain who's going through a 12-step program trying to make amends to spidey by helping him fight crime but just keeps messing it up but spidey wants to encourage him because he's trying to do the right thing um so there's that and then uh andy schmidt was one of uh tom's assistant editors and he uh, enjoyed working with me and and he said let's try to do something i saw him in san diego and he was like Let, let's try to do get set up something else um and i can't remember who said i think he suggested union jack i think it was mike perkins who had pitched it because they were doing a story 
in Ed Brubaker's Captain America that Mike was both inking Steve Epting and he was also doing, you know, the the full art on uh, alternate arcs. And he really wanted to do Union Jack miniseries because he's British and, you know, Union Jack is British. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, uh, he had pitched something and and Andy suggested me and um, we came up with a pitch and uh, it was really instructive to the, the pitch process because, you know, it's funny because I later read an interview with Brian Bendis where he said, you know, when you first get hired to work for Marvel, you have this thing where you want to play with as many, you assume you're going to get fired any minute. So you want to play with as many of the toys as possible before they fire you. And that was definitely true because I was just trying to cram every possible character in there. And he was like, do you really want to put this many characters in there? And I was like, okay, I'll cut it down. So there were only about 50 characters. <laughs> they were the obscure characters that you like. Um, but, um, you know, it it, it uh, ended up working out well. And I have to say that Ed was incredibly nice about, you know, making it uh, tie in with, with his run on cap. And uh, Mike Perkins, of course, was tremendous to work with such a great guy uh and incredibly brilliant as an artist and it was just a ton of fun and people really seemed to like it it's yeah it's and, a great book and i uh you know the obscure guy in me you're using characters like farouk al facade and the death throws you know and i was like yay it's yeah. the stuff that makes my handbook brain sing i also loved you got to do uh annihilation conquest quasar after that where yes. i got to see you write your first kind of queer relationship for marvel yes. which is something you've done a lot of quasar and uh or phylavel and moon dragon uh, you use mm-hmm. the super adaptoid, who's one of my favorite silly characters, uh, yeah, and totally the dragon of the moon. It, it's such a good story. Uh, yeah, that was Bill Roseman's a little bit idea. about that. So, uh, Bill Roseman, uh, how did I end up working with Bill? I forget. Anyway, um, Bill was like, What if Moon Dragon turns into an actual dragon? And I was like, That is insane. Then I was like, Wait a second, wasn't there an actual dragon of the moon? Because I had read the Defenders storyline, I was like, Okay, this you know, this might actually fly um and uh so we did it and yeah i mean for a you know for a pretty straightforward uh straight white guy i i've written a fair amount of uh, gay characters <laughs> at marvel and tried to do my tried to do right by them and uh i'm glad that a lot of people come up to me still and say you know how much that book meant to them to you know see that relationship so i i I, I hopefully did not mess it up. and, and um... No, you did beautiful. I was still closeted when this series came out. And I remember reading this relationship and thinking, you know, Marvel's doing more queer characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and seeing it done so beautifully with their love so pure, it was it's a it's a really beautiful book. I got to read it re- re- uh, pretty recently because uh, we did a super adaptoid episode on my show. Nice. <laughs> but uh, we got to talk all about uh, the beautiful work. Mike, Mike Lilly's art on that it is, is, is incredible. Yeah, yeah. That it really is, and uh, uh, and Bob Almond was the anchor. They did a great job. I did a signing with them uh, at my hometown uh, comic shop, That's Entertainment, um, not long after that came out, and uh, they were kind enough to uh, give me a, a page of original art from from that book, which is really cool. It was, of course, of the original of the Super Adaptoid, who I who I just love. This is a funny era in my life. In 2008, Marvel printed a profile of me in the back of one of the handbooks, which is one of the coolest moments of my nerd life, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but I came out like the next year. So that profile that's immortalized in a Marvel comic 
<laughs> talks about me in a very different type of life. Uh, <laughs> it cracks me up sometimes. Does it um, say you're a uh, you're a uh, lady killer? Uh, you know, I was uh, I was married to a woman and had a child. Wow. I was also an active Mormon at the time, so my world is wow. very, my world is very different now. <laughs> you just had one child. You must be gay. Uh, <laughs> I'm There's sorry. Two. There's I'm, two now, but I've been out for 12 one. years. Sorry? <laughs> I said there's two now, but I've been out for 12 years. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, and then you did World War Hulk, which is yes. such a cool X-Men story. Your first of several uh, incredible X-Men stories you've done. My two Thank favorite you. things about this book with Andrea DeVito, you redefine Juggernaut again uh, and his relationship with Sidorak in this book, which is not a place people think to look. And I love, I'm just picturing you laying out all of the toys from your toy box and figuring out how to use their powers together in cool ways to kick the uh -huh. ass. Uh, mm. You have so many innovative like leadership and team ideas uh, explored through the way the characters use their powers together. Uh, and I know this is a work you're pretty proud of. Do you want to talk about your World War Hulk X-Men story? Yeah, so uh, Andy was in the X-Men office at that point, and he said, so we're doing this World War Hulk, and um, we, we have to do a book called World War Hulk X-Men. Um, he said the idea is that Hulk is coming back from his planet and he's angry at everyone who is in the Illuminati. And one of those is Professor X. However, Professor X wasn't really in the Illuminati when they voted to send Hulk off planet. So premise is a little iffy. And, uh, you know, do you think he can make some more guys like, well, let me ask you this. And I said, how long is it? And he said, three issues. I said, can I just do three issues of Hulk just fighting all the X-Men? And he said, yeah, okay. <laughs> and so that's what I did. So it's I came so good. Hand, hand wavy thing of like Hulk asks Professor X, like, well, if you'd been in the Illuminati, how would you have voted? And he was like, Well, I have to admit, I would have voted to exile you from Earth. He's like, Well, then I'm gonna, you know, smash you and the X-Men all fight him. Anyway, it's just lots of fighting and lots of fun and uh some, you know, I managed to squeeze in some character drama, but uh and the funny thing is there was a convention somewhere like partway through where people were asking if Hulk was going to fight the Juggernaut. And I was like, well, ju Juggernaut's in Exiles and they're based in England or somewhere. And and uh, I think Andy and Nick Lowe were on the panel and they were like, no, oh, he can get over there. She are technology or whatever. And, um, <laughs> you know, I was like, OK, y'all want the Hulk to fight the Juggernaut? He's going to fight the Juggernaut. So I, I literally then went and wrote the third issue script. So that the juggernaut shows up um, and I did whatever. I can't remember how he gets there. I, it was like it was a deal with Ciderac, like you said. And um, anyway, it, it was just one of those jobs where. No, you, you know, there were no real pressures or anything. Everyone was just like, make it fun. And uh, those are some of the best the best kind. You know? It's a great time. And you're juggling a lot of characters. You got all 50 here, <laughs> yeah. but you make it really good. And the art is big. You balance uh, the character development and the drama, but, but really give the action room to breathe. And a lot of your stories. Uh, Andre did a terrific, terrific job on that uh, again. And once again, he sent me some, um, I mean, I bought a couple of pages off from him, but he also sent me some for as a gift, uh, which is very kind of him. And he's just a really sweet guy. Um, and so that was, yeah, that's one of my fit, most fun uh, jobs that I did. I'm also so impressed by your work. And I know this was a team of writers on X-Men Endangered Species. 
this is oh, yeah, after yeah. this is after M Day. There's a bunch of kind of backup stories running behind all the books, and it's a pretty long and very comprehensive story of Beast trying to find evidence of the mutant gene and mm-hmm. making dark deals and kind of drawing ethical lines. How did this series come to be? I'm only picturing like the, all of you sitting around the the table again. All the toys are on the on the table, you know, figuring out who's going to use what where. It's a, it's a really great read. This thank you. This one I remember a lot less about. Uh... I remember, I think it was a situation where, you know, it was sort of broken down and I, uh, by Mike Carey and I had like, um, three chapters in a row and, uh, I just kind of did them. I don't remember the very specific details on that one. I'm afraid I just remember that, um, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I'm sorry, I don't remember a lot of details. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's a really solid read though. If you if you haven't visited in a while, I'd I'd recommend going back over it again. It's yeah, uh, it's, take a look it's at pretty it. it's pretty impressive how comprehensive it is. Thanks. Um, I love your Avengers work, Avengers: The Initiative, which juggles so many crazy characters, Mighty Avengers, and Avengers Academy, in which you get Quicksilver and Tigra and Hank Pym. Some moments that they needed for so long as uh, characters who were failing in some ways. Uh, there's some great stuff. Lots of original characters and a surprising amount of X-Men content in them as well as they face different villains like Hybrid or Justin Seyford and his Sentinel are there. Plus your oh, yeah. X-2-3 work in uh, Avengers Academy. Uh, yes. I got to interview Sean McKeever on my show and share with him live your work with his character Justin Seyford and Sentinel. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reverence that you gave that work—it was a really special moment. Uh, so I know I know that's a lot of stuff lumped together in one. But for sake of time, do you want to talk about some of your Avengers legacy work? Uh, sure. Um, well, it was funny because um, I was—I uh, I remember I got a call from uh, or email from uh, Tom Brevoort or perhaps his assistant editor at the time, which was no longer uh, Andy. Uh, I forget who it was. I can't remember if it was Molly Laser at the time or somebody else. Anyway, uh, I think it was Molly. And early uh, announcement: I'm having Molly on my show soon. I can't wait to meet. Oh, her. nice! What's she doing now? She left to go back to school, and I haven't heard from her since. I truly do not know, but I'll ask. <laughs> I just remember she had the coolest name, Molly Laser. That's a great name. Really, her name. Um. Anyway, uh, she asked if I wanted to do a fill-in issue. Um, I said sure, and so, uh. I wrote, I came up with a pitch about um, this character who's, um, who, who named for himself was Boulder, but he was tagged with the nickname Butterball because he was chubby. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the idea was like everybody else seems really like sullen and pissed off about being drafted into the initiative. So I was like, well, what if there's somebody who like he thinks this is the most awesome thing that's ever happened to him? Um, and so that was the premise. And uh, so I did it and Tom liked it and Dan Slot liked it. And so what had happened with the initiative is it was originally just supposed to be a miniseries, but it did really well and they made it a regular thing. But Dan was already doing another book. I forget which one. And, um, you know, Dan is notoriously um, slow because he's a perfectionist. Uh so when he does the scripting, he, he takes forever agonizing over the words being absolutely perfect. So, you know, Tom was like, 
uh, and Dan were like, hey, would you like to come and co-write this with Dan? And, you know, he'll do the plotting, plotting, and he'll do the scripting. I said, sure, because we had very similar sensibilities about obscure characters and, you know, what makes a good story and approaching stuff. So we did, and that's how we kicked it off. And, and um, my issue actually became number 13, and we started working together with eight. So we worked together for about a year, 12 issues, and then he moved off and I began solo writing it uh, for about another 15 issues. And then um, it ended and launched Avengers Academy with uh, Mike. Um, and uh, yeah, and then that went for about 40 issues. It was really, you know, probably my my most uh, fondly remembered uh, you know, regular series and it's incredible. Uh, Strikers coming out story is really impactful. The relationship between Quicksilver and Finesse, I find really fascinating. Uh, and you're and you're getting uh Quicksilver through some of his just like darkest, worst moments here. <laughs> <laughs> but you also give Hank Pym a strong redemptive arc, uh, through, through this time as well. It's it's complicated, they're messy characters, and you write them yeah. really wonderfully. Uh, and 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 again, uh, for X Men friends, X23 shows up in a lot of these stories at kind of a subtle yes. time in her history as well. Yeah, well, the whole idea was, you know, that these were the Avengers who were broken in some way, you know, um, and that this, the whole premise of the students was they start out thinking they're the Avengers of tomorrow. But what it they find out is that the they they were recruited actually by Norman Osborn when he was in charge of the initiative and they were they went through these, you know, essentially abuse um, to bring their powers out. And uh, so as a result, you know, the the heroes in charge are worried that they might become villains. So, I mean, yes, they're being told they're the Avengers of tomorrow, but there's also this worry that they're the villains of tomorrow. So, um, you know, it makes sense that they'd be taught by the broken Avengers, <laughs> you know. So you've got Hank Pym, who, you know, um, like had is bipolar and and you know, hit his wife and um, had a breakdown and, um, and, you know, built an evil murder robot, built an evil murdering robot. <laughs> uh, and then you've got, um, you know, uh, justice who went to jail for killing somebody and uh speedball who shaved his head and became a like leather dude who was into pain or whatever. <laughs> little, little torture, um, torture porn addict. <laughs> you know, and then there was X-23, uh, who I thought fit really well because she was, I mean, she was literally an assassin. She was brainwashed into being an assassin and she was trying to break away from that. Um, so I thought she fit well. And this was at a time when sort of the X-Men and the Avengers were kind of being like, not integrated, but there was a new merging of them it was leading into avengers versus x-men after which there was going to be some bit of like i think uncanny avengers came out not long after that and there was going to be some merging of the two uh yeah and that arc by the way where the the x-men students confront the academy students is so good too yeah that was fun because i think basically what happened was they got there and like the kids were like okay you all can have your war but we're we're done with it you know yep. we're we're over it already. Um, that was fun. And that's, that's when, that's the one where I got to put Hercules in it. Uh, it was fun that there was, uh, this, this lady on, on, uh, Twitter who was putting up like, you know, 
panel she liked. I guess she was reading it as she read it. She would put up the panel she liked. And there, there was one where, uh, and this is me laughing at my own joke, which is really annoying and obnoxious, but I'd forgotten <laughs> I'd written this line. And uh, he says about the kids, he's like, uh, if that is wrong, the mighty Hercules does not wish to be right. <laughs> <laughs> like you know every now and then i make myself laugh and if, if, if you, if, if you there is a there's so much of your work we could break down if you i have one question from avengers uh the initiative there was a uh, the era where all of the individual states were getting their own superhero teams yes yes i live in i live in utah or at least i moved here uh about 12 years ago and yep. the, the national team of utah who were never seen on panel were called the called which is mm-hmm. such a hilarious name if you're from Utah. How did you guys come <laughs> up with that team name for the uh, the superhero team for Utah? So Mark Millar in Civil War mentioned, you know, the, there's the the team of Mormons out in Utah and then <laughs> left it at that. And everybody else was just like, okay, I'm not going there. You know, like, I don't want to be the one to touch that. Do you? Hell no, not me, because none of us were Mormons. You know, the only... Uh, Mormon in comics was Ethan Van Skyver. And I actually asked him like at one point, I was like, dude, what, what would like, you know, Mormon superheroes wear even. And he'd be like, yeah, probably like, and he was no longer, I think a practicing Mormon, but he'd grown up Mormon. He was like, probably like, remember what like Marlon Brando wore in the Superman movie, something like that. I was like, okay. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) and, um, but then I, I, uh, at one point, I had to come up with a name for them, so I, I think I just came up with the called, uh, just you know, because it sounded vaguely religious. Um, it, it, it's hilarious, and it sounds like it might have been unintentional. Mormons have like an anthem that they sing; it's like a religious anthem called "Called to Serve." Ah, and when Mormon missionaries go out and like knock doors, uh-huh. they call uh, they call that like being called on their missions. It's like this okay. idea of like God preordaining you to do something. So that uh-huh. name is really funny. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> <Makes> me laugh. <laughs> Um, Okay, now we're going to shift the conversation, although there's about 85 things I could ask you about your other work. And I will just mention uh, in one sentence here, one of my favorite things done at Marvel in the last 20 years is Superior Spider-Man. I I love your work with Dan Slott so much. And Dr. Octopus's Spider-Man is so well written. I'm really excited for the new run you have going on that as well. But we'll yeah, talk no, about that another time. I, I was just back for the the one shot that started it off. It's it's actually Dan's uh, going forward. So Okay, um, okay. You did the one yeah. shot. He's doing the series. Yes, yes. I can't wait. I love you both on, on yeah. uh, this character. He's so fun. Now, you are the modern writer outside of probably Brian Michael Bendis, who has done the most with the original X-Men. Uh, what oh, is your connection to the Silver Age and uh, the, the Silver Age X-Men in particular? And what makes these characters special to you? I have no idea. <laughs> I just like doing <laughs> stories that, that, that tie into continuity. I uh, That's funny. I had no idea that aside from Brian that, that I had done a lot of it. But um, I don't know. Um, yeah, it's just I mean, so when I was a kid and I was uh, reading, you know, the like Claremont Byrne uh, X-Men comics. Um, I was not aware, you know, I at the, I, literally at the schoolyard for, off another kid, I bought X-Men 138, which was a recap of every issue of X-Men up to that point. So it kind of had these tantalizing, like one panel per issue glimpse of every prior issue of X-Men. I was like, Ooh, this all looks very cool. 
And then they came out with this uh, reprint series called Amazing Adventures that reprint it, it split up every issue of original X-Men, like starting with number one and into like two halves and put one half per issue. And then the second half of the issue was like a reprint of a original X-Men origin story sure. for Silver Age. And um, I got, I think it was issue six. And then at the bottom, in the back, it had this like reprint of uh, the cover of X-Men 35 in which they fight Spider-Man. And I was like, this looks like the coolest thing I have ever seen in my entire life. And I have to have it. But in the time I was, I was living in Athens, Greece. And I was like, how the hell do I get this? And so it got me investigating the whole concept of back issues and mail order back issues. Um, and so like I, I convinced my parents as like a birthday or Christmas gift to let me buy for $5, the princely sum of $5 plus shipping to Athens, which I'm sure was not cheap uh, out of the, an ad in then current Marvel comics from, I think Moondance comics, a copy of X-Men 35, which I still have. Um, and uh, I was like, it, it showed up and I was like, wow, this is so cool. It, it felt like, you know, I, I felt like Indiana Jones, you know, like finding this ancient treasure, you know, which at the time was, a whopping like <laughs> i don't know 15 years old um and, but it was super cool so i, this I is think the, I, this is before the internet kids when we had to hunt down back issues <laughs> exactly <laughs> both ways in snow up to our elbow yeah um, yeah exactly well we um, yelled at kids to get off our lawn <laughs> no but but like if, if you couldn't find the back issue you didn't get to read the story that's right. that was it um so it was so cool and and i think that that's probably why i think that the, the original x-men are really really cool it's got it's like this sense memory thing so yeah i always enjoy a chance of to write the original x-men my show is tackling covering all of the original x-men stories before we get into you know the more mid-70s giant size era mm -hmm. uh, there's been a few little one-shot stories of them in the back of an annual or a trade somewhere rainbow rowell recently did a story in a in marvel age 1000 uh, but the reason I say you are the one that handles the original characters often, Kurt Busiek has used them a few times. He used them in Untold Tales of Spider-Man. Mm -hmm. uh, and he did the weird Metoxo the Lava Man story, if you're familiar from the holiday special. I don't uh, remember. <laughs> it's weird. But I bet um, I would like it. Brian Michael Bendis, of course, did the time traveling story, which is infamous for bringing Iceman out and, and Teen Jean Grey to the, the modern era. Mm -hmm. uh, but you have written these characters at, at least somewhat in first X-Men. You've written them in X-Men Spider-Man. You've written them uh, in uh, Gwen Stacy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and now you have them coming up in the original X-Men one shot that's, come, yes. that's coming out. So when I say you've done the most, uh, you're you're right on that list. <laughs> well, that's pretty cool. Let's nice spend, let's oh, let's spend just a moment on first X-Men. This is yes. such a weird title for X-Men fans. Uh, the art is Neil Adams, who of course is iconic, but it it lacks the same magic as his original run for me. Mm -hmm. uh, but I could see how hard you work to put this story in continuity with characters like Bolivar Trask and uh, and Fred Duncan being involved. Yeah. Uh, so what happened with that was it was actually Neil's story. As well, Neil came up with the story, and he was, wanted to draw it. And um, Axel Alonzo came to me and said, "You know, listen, we want to know if you would like to co-write this with Neil, um, because you know one of the reasons they wanted me to do it is because they knew that I was really knowledgeable about the continuity and that I could 
make it work in that respect. Um, and they didn't want to have to like, you know, I mean, Neil Adams is Neil Adams. He's a legend. They didn't want to have to be like, okay, Neil, we're going to really like micromanage you and say, well, this is continuity and that's continuity that you have to worry about, you know? So they just kind of wanted me to be there and handle it. And so, yeah, so it was really me trying, uh, I, I don't like, it was Neil's idea and then me working with him to try to make it like fit in the, in the in the um continuity so i don't want yeah, to take it would be so easy for this book to be out of continuity but you did it just right, right so it fits uh, yeah but it's a wolverine and saber tooth leading a younger generation of x-men before xavier formed the x-men yes uh, yeah while while bolivar trask is being manipulated by this guy that kind of looks like krang from the ninja turtles <laughs> okay yes uh it's it's Was an it odd story yeah, a virus. So there's an odd story with characters that uh, a lot of characters we never see again. But right. it's, it's an interesting kind of nugget. We we do have an episode on my show about it. Uh, mm -hmm. It's an interesting I think nugget. I had some thoughts about doing more with those characters, but I don't think he ever got around to it. What was it like working with Neil? It was great. I, but here's, here's the thing is we talk about it and then I'd like geek out and ask him questions about like, the Batman Ra's al Ghul Treasury Edition, like how he got that grainy effect in the background. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, so it, it it was it was awesome, and um, I I probably, you know, I would just like nerd out. Um, and it, I, I I don't know, it was super cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a legendary talent for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I probably should have spent more time focusing on the actual job instead of you know, asking questions about things that had happened, you know, 30, 40 years earlier, but I, I couldn't help myself, but uh, no, it was, it was very cool. Um, Neil's so funny. We, uh, we were at Heroes Con around the time it came out and he had this very elaborate con set up, like he and his family, you know, did a lot of cons uh, towards the latter part of his, his life. Um, and uh, we were set up and I was seated next to him and he would say to me, Christos, man, you got to charge for your autograph. I was like, no, Neil, you know, you're Neil Adams. You can charge for your autograph. I, I, you know, I, I just think I'll try, I'll sign for free. And he was like, look, here's the thing. You got to name a price, like five bucks or whatever. And, and a lot of people will walk away, but some of them won't. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> that's a fair point um but uh you know i i continued to and eventually i did come to a point where like um if there's a you know a line uh i'll charge after a certain number you know but i don't know i, I prefer to sign for free if i you gotta you gotta save your right in hand <laughs> so but, um, oh, oh, mean, please go neil, ahead. Oh, neil, neil is from the era where a lot of creators were like neil tried to start a, a comic book union you know more than i think twice at least um and uh he's from the era where a lot of creators you know when they couldn't get work anymore they just were basically like he, when they made the superman movie jerry siegel and joe schuster were essentially destitute and um neil's the one who found them and kind of shamed uh warner brothers into taking care of them financially so 
he's a great guy. We've talked about a lot about him on the show at, as we reviewed his comics, everything from the crusty bunkers to, you know, his, his incredible creations. Uh, what an incredible, incredible uh, person. Yeah. Um, now let's talk about original X-Men. I've uh, yeah. mentioned on my show, some people get frustrated whenever there's something set in the past continuity, but as long as the X-Men are a franchise, people will always be obsessed with the original X-Men in specific. There's always going to be more stories about them. There's always going to be more stories about early Spider-Man. That's just how it's going to be. Tell me about your book coming out and uh, how this book came to be and why it is. So uh, I think it is what the 60th anniversary of the original X-Men, something like that. It sure is. Yep. Uh, So I got an email from Sarah Brunstad at the uh, X office um, asking if I wanted to do this. And I did. Um, And it's the premise of it is the original X-Men once again, get plucked out of their era. Um, This time it's around uh, in continuity wise, it's around issue 23 when they were fighting a group of supervillains led by um, Count Nefaria and the Maya. Yes. yes. Including, Um, including eel unicorn and plant man. Yes, the porcupine, the porcupine. Yes. So in uh, in the one shot, you will see plant man and a brief cameo from eel. Um, (laughs) Got that to look forward to. Uh, And so they get uh, plucked out of there by um, Phoenix. And this Phoenix is an alternate Phoenix. Uh, She's a Jean Grey uh, who's uh, I'd say in her mid 50s um, from another world where uh, instead of Jean Grey being replaced by the Phoenix Force, they merged. It was more of a harmonious, you know, Phoenix Force was like, hey, do you mind if I merge with you? And Jean was like, sure. And, um, you know, it they merged more harmoniously and there was no Dark Phoenix. Uh, it was just Phoenix. <coughs> Essentially, she's brought peace to her world and everything's groovy there. Um, but now she has detected this threat to potentially all the multiverse. Uh, and she has brought the original x-men to deal with it um from 616 from 616 and the reason she's brought them is because the threat is the original x-men um because on another world um what has happened is the original x-men have grown up and taken over their world um on that world gene is again phoenix but she has she and the other adult X-Men have taken over the world and Jean's power is growing as she has taken out beings like, you know, Thanos and uh, Annihilus and she's taken his cosmic control rod and whatever. And um, good guy Phoenix is like, uh oh, you know, she's going to start casting her gaze at the entire multiverse and we're going to be in trouble here. So she can't go fight her herself. Cause if, if, you know, uh, bad gene takes her phoenix force then she's got double phoenix force and everybody watch out so the idea is to send this the young x-men over there and basically be their you know ghost of christmas past and say what the hell happened to you man you know (laughs) anyway so that's the idea um and uh it's it's, always fun to write a story or read a story where you get to see characters reckon with darker versions of themselves and i guarantee you're going to have some really fun moments with the original five seeing how they turned out in this other world yes so it was it it was a lot of fun to do and uh yeah i I really really enjoyed it and uh greg land did the art uh and i've i've been a fan of his for a very long time i got 
probably 20 years ago, I got a uh, sketch from him at San Diego Comic-Con when he was at CrossGen. Um, and uh, so it's it, it was, it's been a lot of fun. I've seen the finished art, all the coloring. It looks great. I'm very excited about it. It's uh, it's really beautiful in the promo art. This is a question I find interesting to ask reader, uh, different writers because the interpretation is so different. But uh, Christos Gage, what is the Phoenix Force? Uh, it is this. It's 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 fire and life incarnate, dude. <laughs> Cosmic force uh, embodied in the emotions of one woman. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's fire and life incarnate. That's what it is. Fabulous. I don't know. It, it's whatever there. It's whatever you need it to be. Uh, are uh, are there key moments for the characters from the '60s that you were really eager to pick up on? Character beats, etc. I just wanted. So my whole thing was I wanted to, um, like, I didn't want to do. I wasn't trying to reinvent the wheel with any of these characters. I did want to sort of, um, like. When Phoenix brings them, she does give them back their memories from when they came into the future. Um, oh, but we don't we don't dwell on that, mostly because I wanted her to give Jean back her telepathic, sorry, telekinetic. Uh, wait, whichever one she didn't have, her telepathic. Telepathic. Yeah. Um, and um, but if you haven't read the the Bendis story, it doesn't. You don't need to. Um, follow it to follow the story you don't need to read anything to follow the story um but like i just wanted to um you know sort of focus on what would it be like for these particular characters if they went into a future and and found these versions of themselves and also what what would it be like for the adult versions like you know it, it's it's not like you suddenly snap your fingers and turn your back on the things you believed in it, it's sort of like this gradual process you know like all these all these hippies who turned into like hedge fund managers you know what i'm saying <laughs> um, and 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 like just you know made it so that no no future generations will be able to own a home and that the environment will be destroyed it's like uh you couldn't have gone further afield from your ideals you know but that didn't happen overnight it, it it's it's a process so i, I just kind of wanted to explore that and see how that could happen without them being like totally alien to who they who they used to be so it's that's always funny of, it's always funny watching because of the sliding time scale how modern writers will you know try to update their technology the uh the x-men have have cell phones and email or you fast forward a few more years and they're on tiktok uh do you address that in your book at all no i didn't have to okay <laughs> it wasn't a problem <laughs> like you, you literally go back to the the uh the silver age for like a couple of pages and they're just fighting plant man so there's a lot of giant plants around and uh it did not become an issue that's fantastic i'm a big plant man nerd too this is he's such a stupid character mm -hmm. <laughs> but in the best way uh, and can we expect to see the cafe a go-go at all no there was no room for the cafe a go-go sadly oh that's too bad i'm always uh i'm always looking for more uh you know zelda and vera uh, what's it been like being part of this kind of modern group of X-Men creators in the X Slack? We hear a lot of great stories. I, I don't, I mean, I know some of them from other things, but I'm not this whole Krakoa thing. Like I'm so late to it and I, I'm, I haven't really, I've read some of it, but I'm not 
totally up on it that I was kind of doing your own thing. One of the reasons I was attracted to this is because I didn't need to be up on all of that. So, um, sure. You know, I mean, they're all good folks. I, I love, uh, you know, um, uh, I love Jonathan Hickman. You know, I love Cy Spurrier. I think Cy is one of the great, uh, underappreciated writers in the, in the industry. Amazing. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've read his damn, damn them all. I have it. So, so good. good. Uh, <laughs> and um, a, Cy, a Cy Spurrier book makes me slow down. You got to take yeah. time with every panel, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he's, he's so good. Um, anyway, so they're all, they're all terrific, but there's just so much of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I'm so busy that I haven't had a chance to like really get, get through all of it. So um Anyway, luckily I haven't, it hasn't been a problem. It's a whole damn franchise for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, As we are, uh, as we're winding down, let me ask you, how do you resolve the continuity issue of time travel? Where you have characters that are, when they're sent back, they can't know, otherwise it'll change things. Most Mm -hmm. people just use kind of a mind wipe or, or, uh, you know, let me alter your memories a little. Uh, How do you handle that conundrum? Yeah, I think that that's, there's so many easy ways to just do it you know mind wipes are one of my favorites um you know there's there's all kinds of different different ways i, I like the mind wipes myself but yeah, yeah yeah simple and then just fun storytelling otherwise uh chris yeah. i can't wait for this book i'm so excited to read it we'll be premiering this episode right around the time it comes out and awesome. then uh, next year we'll likely be reviewing your book uh on Sweet. my show because we're gonna get through uh the rest of the silver age stuff on my show in uh 2024 excellent uh, you wouldn't think i would had that much still but it, there is i uh <laughs> plotted it's it all out. A bit. we're and gonna jump in to all the uh ancillary appearances from the 70s yep yep we're gonna be in defenders and captain america and you know all these other places including uh starting in the year we'll we'll be in amazing adventures we just uh as we're recording this in november we're we're putting out episodes reviewing the magneto namor versus the fantastic four stuff from the early 70s so i love that uh, it's a good time uh so as we're putting this out uh where can people find you if they'd like to follow your work and uh is there anything else you'd like to plug uh at the end of 2023 Oh Lord. Um uh let's see. Well, um <laughs> I worked on the Spider-Man 2 video game, uh um, which recently came out. Um I uh yeah, I'm working on the X-Men series. I'm working on another video game which probably won't be out for a while, and I can't say anything about it. Um NDAs being what they are. Honey, what else have I done lately? <laughs> Hi, Ruth. Uh, <laughs> we can't remember. Uh, it's mostly been video game stuff um, that I can't talk about. So, did yeah. the writer strike? Oh, wait. Uh, no, because um, I was doing the video game, knowing that the strike was likely coming. So, I mean, yes, it affected us in the sense of like we weren't looking for screenwriting work, and now we're you know getting ready to start doing that again soon. But. Um, it was kind of like, oh, that's coming. So might be a good time to start looking for something that won't be affected. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> no, it, it's but it's really good. I mean, it, look, it was really, really important because some of these things are so important, especially the AI and the streaming residuals and everything. I'm so glad that they did it. I'm sorry. I, I It's awful that it had to last so long. Um, but absolutely you know, necessary, though. Yes, absolutely necessary. I'm glad the actors stuck to their guns. 
and got their deal um because you know i mean the business now um i mean there is the, there is this you know some people think that actors and writers are all rich and that the top you know like society at large the top one percent are but you know for everyone else it's getting harder and harder and harder just to keep food on the table um so it was so important to do it so union strong i'm glad that um i'm glad that we did it and uh, that it's over christos i'm an enormous fan what a tremendous honor to have you on the show thank yes, you, thank you for, for being me. such a great person and a, and a good writer uh, and and again, this is uh, this is almost silly to say all these years later, but you were such a warm and friendly person to correspond with back in my handbook days. Uh, you're you're one of my top favorite people from that era. So thank you so much thank for uh, being such a solid human. Likewise. Uh, all right, everybody, stay tuned. In the latter half of this episode, we're going to be reviewing Untold Tales of Spider-Man Minus One. It's a silly Wolverine story. It'll be on theme <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with uh, Erica Schultz, uh, Josh Trujillo, and Levi Hastings. So stay tuned for that. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Christos. Uh, we'll see you shortly. We are putting this episode out on December 18th, and because it is uh, the year winding up, we're going to make the last couple episodes of this year super chill and easy. We're covering like a two-page Wolverine appearance from some random book you've never read, Untold Tales of Spider-Man number one. We'll get to that in the latter half of today's episode. Uh, next week, you have a, a, a double episode coming out featuring... Number one, the roast of Scott Summers, which is going to be incredible. And then two, my kids are coming back on the show to hang out and talk nerdy stuff uh, with me as well. So that'll be how we wrap up the year. January is going to begin with uh, Beast Turning Blue, and we have a whole lineup ready for you starting in 2024. For today, I am so happy to see the sweet and lovely faces of Josh Trujillo and Erica Schultz and to be seeing uh, Levi Hastings on the show for the first time. I had the joy of meeting Levi in person at FlameCon along with uh, Josh and Erica, who I saw both of you there as well. And we are finally recording this in uh, mid-November. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let me know your name, your pronouns. Uh, let us know where we might know you from. And today's intro question, based on uh, Spider-Man's mom and dad, who we'll be talking about later, is there something about your parents you learned later in life that surprised you? Uh, let's begin with Levi Hastings. Levi, what a great honor to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, my name is Levi Hastings. Uh, pronouns are he, him. I am an illustrator based in Seattle, Washington. I work um, I work in a lot of editorial illustration as well as children's books and comics. Washington's Gay General is my first uh, official graphic novel with Josh Trujillo. And my, uh, something that I, let's see, I can't say there's anything I learned late in life that surprised me, but um, there is sort of some interesting family lore with my, um, on my mom's side of the family, uh, they were, um, there's something called the Mountain Meadows Massacre that occurred on the <laughs> um, Oregon Trail. I live in Utah, Idaho. Levi. We're already friends. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Okay, then. <laughs> so um, my family on my mom's side um, were descended from the Fanchers, and the Fancher train is what the, the wagon train that was ambushed and massacred by Mormon settlers who were disguised as Indians, who then proceeded to kill all of the adults, kidnap all of the children and raise them as Mormon and blame it on the Indians. So, um, real, interesting real Utah history. That's real. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's dark and dark and 
morbid and fascinating. So uh, with ties to Utah's death penalty and like some weird old Utah shit, we'll talk about uh, go see my episode uh, called the first X-Men in Brooklyn with uh, Philip C.V. Terry Blass and Demanda Martini and I, where we all talk about shared Mormon trauma. <laughs> this would Oh, fantastic. Right. Yeah. Mar- <laughs> Terry's a good friend. So yeah, I love Terry. To talk Barry. about that all day. Uh, Levi, it's great to see you. Uh, let's go over to Josh next. Hi, uh, thanks for having me back. Uh, I'm Josh Trujillo. I'm a comic book and video game writer. You might know me from Washington's Gay General with Levi Hastings, or I'm doing the monthly ongoing series Blue Beetle from DC Comics, and I've done a smattering of other characters and things like that. Uh, he, him, and what else? Secrets of my parents' past. You know, um, nothing as shocking as what Peter Parker has, you know, in his family tree. But um, I always knew my grandpa on my dad's side was in the army, but I didn't know in what capacity. And so I found out somewhat recently that he was there for D-Day and he was the supply sergeant for their tank destroyer unit. So he was like in charge of like supplying the weapons to blow up Nazi tanks. And I just think that's like the coolest thing. And you're now on the cock destroyer unit. That's a, that's a gay, obscure gay reference. <laughs> Josh, I'm sorry you didn't include the story in the book about your grandma's secret uh, gay relative. Oh, yeah, that's also true. Yeah, you need to read Washington's Gay General. There's all sorts of Trujillo family uh, intrigue. It's some good stuff. Uh, And then over to my dear friend Erica Schultz next. Hi, Erica. It's great to see you. It is fabulous to see you again, Josh Levi. It's a pleasure to meet you. Um, I am Erica Schultz. I am a writer um, most recently on... um, uh, Hollow's Eve in X-23. Uh, I'll also be writing Daredevil uh, Gang War that's uh, coming out when this episode is coming out. Um, and something I learned about my parents, I didn't learn it so late in life. I learned it probably, I mean, I'm in my 40s, so I would say I learned it like probably about 20 plus years ago. But I knew my mom had been engaged prior to meeting my father. But then I found out that my father had also been engaged and that my Italian grandmother on my mother's side made my mother break up with that guy because he was Jewish. And then my Irish grandmother on my father's side made my father break up with that woman because she was Asian. So basically, I only exist because of racist grandparents. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Yeah, that's, that's a fun one. That's a fun one. Uh, it's a joy to have all of you here. Lastly, my name is Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a former Marvel Comics handbook writer and the current host of this show. I, uh, so I, I am a descendant of like Mormon potato farmers. I grew up in Missouri, uh, but my mom grew up in Idaho in like potato farm country. Like literally the high school mascot in her high school was a potato. Like, and that's not a joke. But my mom, uh, there's pictures that hung up in my grandparents' house where my mom had like this big beehive hairdo in the 1960s. And she was the blonde girl with all like brunette sisters. And apparently in the 1960s, that was all the rage. Uh, she would tell me stories later in life. And I'm I'm the sixth of seven children about how she got engaged like 13 times before she met my dad. And she, she'd always use these like ridiculous phrases like, oh, that's the parking lot where that boy and I would kiss up a storm in the back seat. And I'm like, mom, <laughs> she's scandalous. scandalous for a Mormon mother. She's uh, she's lovely. Uh, so today we're going to begin in a little bit of a sobering space as I set up the conversation for Washington's great gay general. 
And one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk about this book, I not only is it phenomenal, the storytelling and the art is so good. When I came out in 2011 and left Mormonism, I had no community. I left kind of everything behind and I found solace in the queer community. And uh, I did a lot of writing. I did a lot of blogging. I did a lot of research. I ended up making a documentary. So I know what it's like to delve deep into history and like work to tell stories. But books like Washington's Gay General were the types of things I was really latching onto as stories that taught me about myself, about my history, and about my heritage. This is such a well-researched and beautiful book. I really love it. I would love to, uh, Levi, and, and then Josh, if you guys would start here, uh, hear about your search for community and how you first found this story. Uh, I, I know I'm asking a little bit of a personal story there. You're welcome to bypass if you choose. Uh, sure. Um... I mean, I feel like, you know, like a lot of uh, young people who come out, um, I was, so I was actually in college when I came out officially, but um, it was, you know, yeah, it took, it took quite a while to find uh, any sense of community. And I think like you, I was sort of looking in places where, um, you know, like, you know, sources that weren't necessarily in person, um, you know, and I, I know Josh talks about this a little bit in the book, but like, we kind of came up at a time where it was it was a lot easier to find people online or in a digital space and you were able to find people who maybe were not in the close proximity to you but you could sort of find shared interests and uh i i certainly found a uh you know within the within the creative comics community and you know the, just the general queer community in seattle um i i discovered a much more um rich and diverse and interesting and supportive community space um and and i would say like um you know more most most relevant to this book and the story um you know josh and i met at a convention and we were um i think we were originally introduced to each other on basically on, what was gay gay twitter i was gonna say on grinder <laughs> no 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 uh no not quite that but but gay twitter which is not too far removed from grinder um <laughs> but um yeah, like in the early, you know, in the early 2010s, I would say, and then we met up at Emerald City, having kind of been familiar with each other's work. And, you know, the thing about some of these big conventions is like, there's obviously, there's, they, they obviously appeal to a wide mass audience, and there's obviously a lot of crossover. But when you sort of find your kind of uh, queer colleagues in that space, you kind of gravitate toward each other. And um, I think it was, it was, you know, not only Josh, but like you mentioned Terry Blass and, you know, other friends in that sphere who, you know, we've all kind of come up together and created things together and support each other throughout our creative journeys. And to me, that's been the kind of most valuable and sustainable queer community that I've found um, that's both, you know, a professional community, but it's also a friendship community. And um, yeah, it's super, it's super supportive and it's super important to me. And, and I feel, um, you know, the Josh and I, I think early on realized that we we shared a very deep um, interest in queer history and in telling stories about queer history and wanting to see um, our own sort of personal interests and our interest in queer culture kind of reflected back um, in a in a comics medium and hope that that would reach an audience that would also find that relatable. Uh, Josh, yeah. Um... Oh gosh. So, you know, I grew up in Southern California, which people kind of think of as being like a liberal bastion, but that's 
that's only the case if you are in Los Angeles, you go 10 miles east or west, you're in trouble, right? And so um, I didn't know any gay people. There weren't any queer people in my high school or even, you know, anything like that. And so I kind of um, made a resolution that once I got access to a car, I would get a job as far away from my hometown as possible. And I'd find a job where there, where I knew there would be gay people. And so for me, that meant working at Disneyland. So my I, I very much associate my early queer years with kind of this like community of like artists and Disney fans and everyone kind of, it's like, um you know, there's so many people who work there that are young and fresh out of high school or in college and they don't really know themselves yet. It's just like a big coming of age story that's happening all at the same time. And so that was really like my like quote unquote college experience of like going to gay bars for the first time with friends or like having my first hookup or like, are we dating? Are we not? And like, still, I didn't really find that like community necessarily. I I moved to West Hollywood for a boyfriend. And even then I just kind of felt really out of place with like the nightlife scene. It wasn't until honestly, like, yeah, like Levi's saying like gay Twitter that I started to connect with people and kind of like, like an intellectual and a creative level. Um, and so like, that's been hugely valuable, not just for like my career, but like just for like my mental state, you know, I think Levi's the same way. Our, I think our best friends are collaborators and people we've, we've worked beside and just like, it's really been hugely beneficial. You know, a lot of my work is um, I try to help people see themselves in, in popular media, whether that be inclusion and diversity in the video games I work on or telling stories about whoever in comic books, but like um, it all kind of ties together with um, that, that longing for, for community, I guess. It's kind of an underlying theme of a lot of what I do. You're all, all three of you are really great storytellers. Levi, I want to focus in on your style for just a minute. I know you've done some children's books and art all over the place. I know you're working uh, at, in, in a lot of spaces. Your website tells a lot about some of the work you're doing. In Washington's Gay General, you have what I would describe as a little bit of a cartoony style, and that's absolutely a compliment. But the way you draw facial expressions and intimate embraces and these historical references to battles, you have to use a lot of sequential stuff there's a lot of art that does the job, but the words make the art uh, better and their through line is there. The color palette you choose with blacks and blues and whites uh, along the way. I would love to hear a little bit about your process in putting this book together. It's a big book and it's beautifully done. Thank you. Yeah, this was certainly one of the, probably the biggest creative challenge I've ever taken on, um, just in terms of pure volume. Um, and yeah, you know, the I'm sure a lot of comic artists will tell you, like creating creating comics is a very different art form than creating any other kind of visual, um, you know, sort of illustration, right? So, so a standalone piece of art is is a very it's meant to be <clears throat> sort of experienced very differently than a comic. And so, whereas a lot of my sort of standalone illustration or even my illustration for children's books is a little more lush and a lot more colorful. And <clears throat> I enjoy adding a lot of detail to things. Um, you know, this this particular project was one where I really wanted to, um, you know, kind of uh, for for you know both for creative and for just logistical reasons, kind of strip back a lot of the detail. And I've always been really drawn to the kind of cartooning um, 
sort of like mid-century cartooning and that's sort of very limited color palette, kind of <clears throat> simple, simple tones. And honestly, some, you know, like sort of um, a bit of a uh, rhythm of, you know, dense backgrounds counterpointed with, um, you know, kind of more simple, simple panels and, you know, standalone shots of people kind of just, you know, expressing what they're feeling. And <clears throat> so, yeah, I, it, this was a really fun challenge in that um, I had to kind of learn and or develop a whole new set of skills and, and storytelling techniques that I had never really incorporated to this level before. And, um, you know, using a limited color palette really helped me kind of drill down on the actual, um, you know, the bones of the piece, right? The actual content. So I didn't have to worry as much about the color. Um, so in a way it was a bit of a gift to have a very limited color palette, um, which I think was, you know, initially it was much more of a production and budget issue than a creative choice. But um, I think ultimately it ended up being um, lending itself really well to the story and to um, the process. And I, now I kind of, this is sort of how I just want to make comics now with a very, you know, two, two to three tone color palette. Um, and in terms of the, you know, um, the historical stuff, I, you know, I, I was, you know, Josh and I definitely did a lot of research on, on both of our ends. And I, I got to do a lot of the visual research with, you know, scouring the internet for all these like Prussian, you know, army uniforms and hats and, and epaulets and fancy wigs. So for me, that was, that was a joy. And then I, I just sort of had to learn how to, um, you know, really limit my um, sort of intention for detail. And I was like, okay, I need to pull it back and, and just, you know, realize like not every epaulet needs to be rendered in this particular panel. Your uh, your Baron von Steuben is uh, smug and flamboyant and easy to anger and so horny and he's a really he's a really great character in your book and it's nearly two hundred pages you drew this guy a lot uh, Erica go ahead yeah um so I know that with when you're doing OGNs it is a, a huge undertaking and you're talking about anywhere from one hundred and fifty to two hundred pages. Uh, or even sometimes more between the writing and the art. Um, did you find that doing this limited color palette, I, you said that it sort of helped free you from making certain artistic decisions. Um, did you find that this is something that you want to continue in other uh, in other projects that you're doing, or is this something that you think is kind of a limited style that you're going to use only for these much larger projects like the, you know, the 150 to 200 to 225 OGN uh, pages? Honestly, I would love to keep using this for a lot of different projects. Um, I think it does, particularly with comics. And I, I for me, I think, again, because I, I sort of gravitate, like as a reader, I really gravitate to more limited color palette. In, in when I'm reading comics. And um, I, so this, to me, I'm just, I'm, I'm really excited to keep going with this particular uh, kind of limited palette and style. And, you know, um, not to get ahead of ourselves, but Josh and I have plans, you know, to do other books like this. And I'm hoping to kind of continue this style throughout whatever work we continue to do together. And to be, to be completely honest with you, I'm also a very slow, 
comics maker. Like I, I, I don't work as quickly as a lot of other people. And so for me, it is almost just a necessity to kind of limit my, um, my use of color just as a means of finishing the work. When I first came out, the idea of queer history blew my mind. We are taught history, but we are taught from the white cisgendered male kind of version of history. Uh, even big movements like the suffragettes is told from that perspective. It's fascinating. But women's history is history, and disabled history is history, and trans history is history. So you learn about World War II, but they don't teach you Alan Turing was gay. And you learn about NASA, but you don't learn that Sally Ride was gay. And you learn about Watergate, but you don't learn that Barbara Jordan was gay. We go back to the Revolutionary War here. Josh, tell us about unearthing the story of Baron von Steuben, if you would. Yeah, so Baron von Steuben was a Prussian general who served in the Seven Years' War. He um, he was a prisoner of Russia, which kind of earned him his claim to fame in Europe. And he was recruited by Ben Franklin to come to the United States and help us in the American Revolutionary War. Um, really interesting character. He didn't speak English very well. He was kind of pot-bellied, short, bow-legged, um, just like the cuss a lot. But he was really good at his job. And what his job was, was kind of military excellence. He wanted to be a four-star general. He wanted to be this grand legacy bearer, you know. And when he came to the United States, we barely had an army. Um, it was a lot of like citizen soldiers, farmers, craftspeople. They certainly weren't prepared to kind of like take on the biggest military superpower in the world at the time, which was Britain. Um, so he really worked closely with George Washington to kind of train American soldiers how to become a military. Um, but on top of all this, the thing that we talk about the most in the book, obviously, is what we would now identify as kind of his queer identity. Um, it's it's a, an open secret, I guess I'd call it, um, that he was a lover of men. He had a, an eye for younger recruits and soldiers that worked with him. He trained under Alexander or um, uh, Frederick the Great, and who is no stranger to uh, homosexual proclivity. Real gay, yeah. <laughs> real, real gay. And But there's also this question in the book, um, you know, who are we, how are we to identify someone whose ide identity was rooted in the time as kind of our modern conception of being gay, right? So like nobility and wealth and status and marriage and love and sex meant so many different things than they do now. Um, so we kind of explore those questions in the book, but also follow his life through a queer lens. He's very well known in kind of American military circles. Um, they teach you about him at, um, at, at uh, when you recruited in the army, for example. He wrote a training manual called the Blue Book that was still used for over a hundred years after he wrote it. Um, but they don't talk about his his lovers. They don't talk about his queer identity. And so we're, we're only um, we're only afforded the opportunity to know anything about this guy's love life because of his status and his privilege of being a commanding officer. Um, there's a soldier that was literally drummed out of Valley Forge for sodomy charges, um, but that never would have happened to Von Steuben. Instead, Von Steuben had underwear parties with his cadets. And so, like, he could just get away with it. And so, like, for every Von Steuben, there's millions, literally millions, of stories we'll never know about what their love lives were like, what their relationships were like. And that's the kind of, like, 
I don't know, that just makes it almost like a moral imperative to do this kind of work. Um, you know, Baron von Steuben is a, a legendary figure. And so um, you close chasing... the book, you close the book with his monument in Washington, DC, and how oh well remembered, and how there's queerness right there, but it doesn't say it out loud. If it keep going, it's brilliant. No, it's so it's so weird. So this statue can, that's in front of the White House, uh, you know, it's it's a very classical heroic soldier uh, statue. But on the side of it, you know, there's this like kind of this homosexual, I don't even know what you call it, kind of like uh, naked men in 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 war, and then also like very yeah, and then very beautiful kind of sapphic imagery as well. Um, and then on the the statue, they have kind of a plaque dedicating it to his quote unquote sons, um, to two soldiers that served under him that he adopted later in life, which was kind of a common practice for for gay men of certain wealth in order to have their lovers inherited. Even re- fairly recently, that's something that older gay men were doing for their lovers. Um, and so this was like in the 1910s when the statue was erected and like like 40,000 people showed up to watch the statue be unveiled. Like he's a big hero, but they just kind of choose to like blissfully ignore what makes him special to me, which is that he was like us. Uh, Levi, what has the public response to the book been? And how has that felt as uh, as this kind of your first big published? I, I, again, I know you've done other books, but how's that response been to your art? Honestly, it's been um, really gratifying. Um, it's been kind of overwhelmingly positive, at least uh, from, from my perspective. And, you know, I think it's you know, just based on the subject matter, I, I think, you know, Josh and I had talked a lot beforehand about, you know, the potential for, you know, backlash and obviously with all the, the you know, book bans going on in red states and, and around the country, um, this book has a gigantic target right on the cover. So um, I think we were sort of bracing for some of that, but really, um, so far, it's just been overwhelmingly positive. And I'm really, really happy with um, you know, the response that it's gotten both, you know, Josh and I've had opportunities to, you know, meet people in person and, and you know, debut this, you know, we debuted the, the book at FlameCon this summer. And people are, have just been so excited about this and continue to, you know, be excited, you know, be, continue to be excited about this story that we really, we started as a zine like five years ago. And um, it's still kind of surprising to me that people are so interested in this story. Uh, and so it's it's incredibly gratifying to see that, and I hope I hope we can kind of keep the momentum going. It's beautiful and it's thought provoking. I uh, before the pandemic, and I don't talk a lot about this on the show, but I spent five years making a documentary called Dog Valley about a man named Gordon Church who was really horribly murdered here in Utah in the late 1980s. And one of the big challenges of making the film, I did a number of interviews with people who talked all about Gordon and his life, and in the end was unable to use the footage from those interviews. And one of the oh, big no. challenges was making the the character of this victim come alive in the film in the right ways, uh, being limited in the types of storytelling that we were able to use. Uh, that's all I'll say. For those that have seen the documentary, you may notice what I'm talking about a little bit. 
Uh, Josh, I imagine doing the story here for Von Steuben, you're so careful with your words about here's what we know, here's what we assume, here's what it was like for other people, here's what we don't know. Uh, that's one of the things I was most impressed with in the book is how careful you were about that. Was that a challenge as the writer? Um, yeah, I think very much so. It would have been, um, honestly, it would have been objectively easier to just do like a very fantastical, fictionalized version of his life. But the truth of the matter is there are there are thousand page biographies written about this man and they don't touch on his lovers at all. And it was a story that needed to be told with some factual basis. You know, the book is called um, The Legends and Loves of Baron von Steuben. So we do have a little bit of wink wink there. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think the truth is is stranger and more interesting than fiction. And I didn't want to um, have his ghost haunt me for the rest of my life. Uh, so I wanted to get it as much right as possible. Um, and it's, I know what that's like to be haunted. That's a, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I was I talked to Levi about this, and it's true for both of us. It's like, um, you know, we do monthly comics. You know, Erica too, and it's like, order this book by this date, or you'll never get it. And when this is a book that's going to be in like a bookstore for years, unless you buy it, and then there won't be. But you know what I mean, like. This book, we'll be promoting this book forever and we'll be talking about this man's life forever. And so we had this like real urgency to do the right thing with it. It's it's beautiful. I was sitting in the coffee shop prepping for today's episode. The book was next to me uh, and I was rereading parts and a woman walked behind me. I think she might've been a little drunk and she looked at the book, tapped me on the shoulder and she goes, that looks like an interesting book. I bet you think you're really smart. And I said, Go away, please. Because <laughs> I was not in the booth. <laughs> but uh, but it, the cover draws reactions from people. <laughs> um, Erica, did you get a chance to look over Washington's Gay General at all? Uh, I did give it a, a quick uh, cursory look. I'm sorry that I did not uh, look more into it. Um, I do have to say, though, Ted, you mentioned earlier that history is, you know, as it's presented, you know, in school for the most part, I mean, obviously there are outliers, um, but history for the most part is pre presented from a cisgender white male perspective, especially in the United States. And von Steuben is a big deal. I mean, I grew up in Teaneck, um, which is part of Bergen County. We have historical plaques everywhere saying, you know, Washington stayed here during the Revolutionary War. You know, I grew up literally four miles off the George Washington Bridge um, in New Jersey. And there is the Baron von Steuben house in Hackensack that we would all go to. Um, I believe it was either third or fourth grade, you know, your school trips that everybody would yeah, do. I've been to that house. In, in Hackensack, right on the water. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's very interesting that you say that there are these like thousand page, page books, biographies about this particular person. But the only thing that it does is talk about the history in the context of his usefulness to the general narrative. He was this fantastic strategic thinker. He uh, trained the, the soldiers well. He was an asset to the army and to Washington at the time. But that's only who he is in terms of how useful he is to basically keeping this cisgender white male narrative of history in general. Um, and I think it's very interesting that, you know, like you said, all of these different biographies, this is not someone who only has one biography out. I mean, this is like a Titan of, you know, American history, if you've actually studied it. 
Um, and, and I think it's just very interesting that, you know, yours is, uh, yours and Levi's is sort of the first real delving into not only this is the person, but this is the real person because obviously his queer identity does, uh, uh inform who he is as a whole person versus the soldier. And, and, and it seems like the world or correction, the history that, that people know of is just, this is the soldier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, please, Levi. Oh, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. His his story is kind of wrapped up in his his functionality, his usefulness, like you said. And um, there's, you know, he was kind of maligned in his own lifetime um, after his usefulness had kind of run out and the war had ended. You know, he spent a lot of time kind of petitioning Congress to get paid the money they promised him. Um, he wanted to have his own Monticello, his own Mount Vernon, and he never really got it. Um, arguably, I would say none of them deserve it, but he wanted one too. Um, and so, you know, he kind of li lived a kind of a pauper's life relative to the other founding fathers. And because he didn't have necessarily um, a, grand, a grand estate and kind of, he didn't get to leave his mark on history in the way that he wanted to. And um, I think there's a real there's a sense of tragedy to that because he was obsessed with this idea of legacy. He'd be so pleased that we're talking about him this far after he's gone. But um, I think he'd be upset that the statue wasn't even bigger. Uh, Levi, did you have any comments there? Uh, yeah, I just wanted to add to that. Um, and that's um, part, part of what um, Eric was talking about was I think adds sort of adds into the, the reason um, why I think he's such an important and interesting figure um, for the reason that like, um, you know, Josh and I, you know, we talk about, we were, we were always very interested in, you know, we both grew up with this and I'm sure we all have, you know, we grew up with this mythology about the founding of our country and all of this sort of, um, all of, all of these, you know, grand figures and heroic battles and it's all idealism and freedom and, you know, fighting the oppressor and blah, blah, blah. And very, very, um, very rarely do do we actually get into the the, the nitty gritty of of the very real and complicated um, you know sins of that time, right? Whether it's slavery, whether it's indigenous um, genocide, whether it's you know all of the labor issues, particularly around the American soldiers who were not paid for many years after the war, you know. And you, I think, I think. Um, Von Steuben is, a, is kind of the ideal character with which to kind of dismantle some of these mythologies around American history and around the founding, because he does come to America with all of the sort of dreams and potential and, um, you know, the, the, you know, basically the American dream personified. And, you know, it turns out that like, okay, as soon as his usefulness is, is over, it's like, well, we don't want to worry about you. We don't want to pay you. We don't want like, please go away. Um, we only we only want to promote American-born people. We don't we we don't really trust Prussians, and especially gay Prussians. You know, so it's sort of he's only he's only valuable as as much as he's useful to the the cause of this American mythology. And anything beyond that is sort of irrelevant to history. And so I think that's exactly why I think he makes such an important um, place in our in our hearts in our you know queer in our longer queer history. 
So listeners, if you have not had the chance to read Washington's Gay General, please pick it up. Support indie creators, but support queer history. That's well done. If I could, uh, and I'll, I'll post an image, but if I could sum this book up in one image, it is uh, the very gay von Steuben arriving in Valley Forge so fabulously in his coat with a sled full of dogs afterward. He's having his frozen moment. It's really delicious. Uh, okay, we're going to take an unorthodox approach today. We're going to do the interview, or excuse me, the issue review in kind of a quick just discussion format. And then I want to talk about what all of you have coming out right now, because all of you are working and doing such incredible work. Uh, today, we're going to be reviewing very quickly The Untold Tales of Spider-Man Minus One. We've spent a long time on my show over the last few years in Flashback Month talking about this event Marvel did in mid-1997, where the assignment on each book was to take a story and put it before Fantastic Four number one ever came out. Untold Tales of Spider-Man is a book that uh, was telling the in-between adventures from the early 60s from Spider-Man uh, that was like happening in between the issues. It's a beautiful book done by Kurt Busiek. So this is the flashback, flashback month story, July 1997. Uh, the title of this story is There's a Man Who Leads a Life of Danger, which is a line from the Secret Agent Man song, if you guys know that. The writer on this is Roger Stern. The penciler is John Romita. We've got Al Milgram on inks, Steve Matson on colors, Richard Starkings on letters. Tom Brevoort is the editor. Uh, this is a gorgeous John Romita cover. Uh, it's fun to have John Romita back on a book in the late 90s. I know he did work uh, right up until he passed away. Uh, but this is a great cover of Richard and Mary Parker in kind of a classic spy pose. Any thoughts on this cover before I do a quick issue review? It's beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Being, Love it. Being classic John Romita in this uh, in this particular like spy genre, which you know the the James Bond esque ness of it, uh, you know, and and they actually make reference to Men from Uncle in the uh, credits. Um, it just, it's delicious. It's, it's wonderful. And I love it. And I love, I mean, I love John Romita's work in general, but seeing this is just like, Ooh. Spider-Man's dad is so hot on this cover. <laughs> he really is. He really His is. Mom is so hot too. <laughs> yeah. I'm obsessed with Mary throughout this book. Uh, Josh, any oh, thoughts on the cover? Um, I mean, you know, it's just like, I, this era, and we'll talk a little bit about this, this like Peter Parker's parents were spies is like like repugnant to me as a concept but then i saw this cover and i was like oh john romita's in it okay i'm like all in you know what i mean like he could draw the like instructions on how to put together a dishwasher and i would probably pour over it like it's a sacred text okay <laughs> i'm gonna cover the dense marvel continuity stuff really quickly Peter Parker shows up, Amazing Spider-Man, well, Amazing Fantasy, and then Amazing Spider-Man. He's with his Aunt May and his Uncle Ben. His Uncle Ben dies right at the beginning, right? So we know he's an orphan, but they don't really tell his story until Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 5, which is years later. We learn that he was uh, uh, orphaned. His parents are Richard and Mary Parker. Uh, Richard is Ben's little brother. We'll learn a lot later in continuity as a sister named Teresa, who is also the child of his parents, who, although she was not raised by them. Uh, Richard and Mary were spies working in the CIA for Nick Fury. We learn a little about their secret spy background. They were sent to Algeria. And there is a Red Skull character. Now, Marvel printed comics in the 1950s where they featured characters like Captain America and the Red Skull. But later they came back and they're like, the Red Skull was asleep and Captain America was in the iceberg. So they had to go back and retroactively make the 50s version of Captain America and the Red Skull different characters. 
So Richard and Mary go after a Red Skull who's like a communist guy named Albert Malik. He has an agent named The Finisher whose real name is Carl Fears. Uh, they die in an air airplane crash. Later in comics, and a lot of 90s readers will know this story, Chameleon built like robots of Peter's parents. And they're like, we've been alive the whole time. But really, they weren't. Occasionally, we get a Spider-Man as an orphan story. But really, we don't have a lot of context. This is kind of the only big Richard and Mary story ever told outside of that original appearance. So I'm going to cover this really quickly. Every flashback story opens with Stan Lee in some sort of ridiculous getup. He is uh, carrying a smoking gun. He's dressed as James Bond. We've got him in the middle of kind of that classic James Bond bullet spiral stuff that they did back in the 60s. And when we get the credits here, all of the different uh, creators on this book are compared to different classic spy stories. It's kind of fun. This is not super X-Men-y, so I'm going to cover this quickly. We're on a floating luxury yacht called the Shaharazad, which means city dweller. A man named Henry is reporting into Baroness Adelisha von Krupp. Uh, this is her only appearance, but she is transcendent. Uh, she is wearing the sexiest little purple dress, uh, and she is kind of splayed out. Uh, do you guys want to talk about uh, the Baroness and your thoughts on her? Because she's she's worth pausing for for a moment. <laughs> I think that it, it kind of reminds me, the the sort of silhouette of the dress a little bit reminds me of when he designed uh, Mary Jane's dress for the cover of, uh, for the wedding issue. Um, just, the, you know, the way it sort of comes out and splays out and sort of the fluidity of it, so. Any other thoughts? No, it's like Oh, no, I mean, it's, she, she just, like, I think she is just a, a bombshell, right? She is like an ice princess, kind of. I'm immediately drawn in. I'm kind of surprised the character hasn't popped up in some little, you know, little bits or pieces here. But I I immediately love her and cannot wait to see her just wreck everything in her path. She does have her bits and pieces mostly displayed, though. That's true. <laughs> she does, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she's also a Nazi, right? She's like, uh, she's giving us our Von Trapp Baroness from The Sound of Music, like uh, the, the story we needed. Okay, Richard Parker's there. He's dressed all in black. He's eavesdropping. They, he hears about this guy named Agent 10 who's been kidnapped, and we'll get to him in just a minute. There's some super spy action. There's a bracelet that shoots gas. Rich, Richard gets... Uh, shot as he's like diving into the water. Mary's there. They swim back to land. Uh, the Baroness leaves in her helicopter and blows up the luxury lot yacht behind her and uh, kills everyone on board. Uh, Richard and Mary make their way back to their ambassador, who's apparently their handler. He, uh, they tell him what like what happened with the Baroness and how they tracked her, and she's a Nazi sympathizer, and she's got an ally named Gunther Schmidt, who's like some major terrorist. Uh, but now they learn that the CIA's ally, Agent Ten. Not Agent X, but Agent 10, who has been uh, captured. He's on loan from the Canadian government, apparently. And uh, he's been captured in India in the state of Maharashtra. I am not uh, an expert on Indian geology, but that is a real place in geology, geography. Uh, so now they're off to India to find the agent. They look around for a few days. First, they visit a guy named Boothroyd. Now, this guy is an existing Marvel character. He's like... Fury's tech guy from the 60s books. He's shown up with like five comic books or something. But they get some more tech devices. Uh, Fury sends them to, or excuse me, we get a flashback to Fury recruiting Richard out of uh, out of World War II into the CIA. 
That's where Richard met Mary, who was a translator. Mary thinks back to her own past about her own dad, Wild Will Fitzpatrick. This is the only guy, this guy, the only time this guy showed up as well. Uh, apparently, he was a former spy in World War II. He raised her as a single dad. Uh, now they're both spies and they are married. We get a quick flashback. The flight lands in Bombay. They track down the Baroness after a few days because she kind of stands out. <laughs> <laughs> she's walking around in her like blonde uh, Caucasian Aryan uh, space. Uh, they see her during a parade for Ganesh's birthday. They play up some American tourists like, I don't know where I am. I was just looking for the bathroom kind of shit to sneak into this building. There's a camera that shoots some gas. Okay, flipping through all of that very quickly. Then we get inside and there is a man called the Supreme One dressed all in black who is torturing Wolverine in the kinkiest sex dungeon you've ever seen. And this is the page we'll pause on for a minute. Let's uh, let's talk about the Wolverine as Agent 10 reveal here. Uh, and or does this live up to your own sexual fantasies? Uh, <laughs> we'll pause here for just a minute. Let me know your thoughts. I love it how Richard just goes, good lord. <laughs> like, is he reacting? He's saying what we're all thinking. To well, I mean, is he reacting to his physique, to the position, like, the all the equipment, the gimp in the corner, like what's he reacting to? There's, there's, a lot a, to take in. there's a man in a black hood with an electrified whip. Wolverine is in like ankle, wrist, neck, and abdomen like shackles. And uh, there's like a drill pointed at his head. Uh, this is a real kinky, guys. <laughs> no, this looks like a, what like a private commission. That the art, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? <laughs> this is the kind of thing that's sitting in a in an art book somewhere that's not meant for human consumption. <laughs> yeah. And John Romita drew this. Exactly. He's like, oh yeah, okay. I would love to know what the description was and why his brain immediately went to this setup. <laughs> I want to know if they did this Marvel style, if they wrote the script Marvel style. It's Roger Stern uh, and Romita. I would bet they did. So the the heavy lifting on this was on Ramita coming up with this. And the Supreme One is wearing the tightest clothing. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, it's a beautiful reveal, though. I mean, just from, from you know, a pure graphic point of view, like, it's just, it's kind of a, you know, it, it so much information in one image, you're getting all of the characters kind of, uh, you know, and you have, uh, you know, the the two spies who are kind of having to sort of turn you know they're looking from behind or you know they're like they're they're facing us but looking backwards it's like it's there's just a lot of acrobatics happening in this image that it but it all works so beautifully and yeah Wolverine or, is, um, he's Wolverine center stage is, uh, he's, yeah he's shirtless and ripped and hairy mm -hmm. just like we want him <laughs> yeah it's gorgeous Okay, so uh, the, the Supreme One says, I'm not going to use a German accent here. He says, have you met your Agent 10? He has a remarkably strong constitution. In nearly a week of torture, all that I have learned is that he calls himself Logan, a most difficult man to break. But Richard and Mary break free. There's a fight. The Baroness gets shot, but her gun hits a computer, which makes the whole building go in flames. Logan gets freed. He gets the Parkers to safety. The Baroness and the Supreme One get out. And the Baroness unmasks as Baron fucking Von Strucker. Uh, and I am not comfortable with this man being drawn this hot. Because when he's in that, like, tight clothing, you're like, ooh, look at this guy. But then he's, like, the bald Nazi, like, father of the Fenris twins. I am not comfortable with him being drawn in a sexy way. <laughs> no, he he goes from, like, uh, like um, 
Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe to like Colonel Clink from Hogan's Heroes and like yeah. Blink Eye. We'll talk more about that guy sometime later on my show. But boy, is this just like the most irredeemable character in Marvel Comics besides the Red Skull himself. Uh, they get back to the mainland or whatever. Logan shakes Richard hands. He goes, well, Parker, that's one I owe you. Richard then learns Mary's one month pregnant. Wolverine tells them congratulations. And we close on a panel of Richard and Mary in a heart surrounded by webs. Aww. Quick issue review. Silly story. What are your one, two punches on, uh, on this little, this little dive into Marvel history? I think it's great considering that one uh, Wolverine storyline where he swaps with Peter and tries to uh, to get in bed with uh, Mary Jane. <laughs> so uh, this is a little uh, this is a little retconning here. He was there when when Spider Man's parents learned they were pregnant. <laughs> weird. Yep. Very weird. I mean, what it like? It's it's quite delightful as a little like nugget. I hate the idea that this has any traction in terms of Spider-Man's continuity, but that's just the nerd in me. Like, this is a totally fun story. And I would actually, I would love to have a couple more like this where they're just casually super spying their way through the Marvel universe. Uh, Levi, yeah, so I, yeah, so I'm coming in truly as like the Marvel, uh, the new, the newbie, like I am not well-versed in the Marvel lore or the, or the, you know, the continuity issues. So this was a completely new world for me in terms of like, uh, you know, his parent, you know, obviously I know his parents died. I had no idea they were spies with agents of shield. And so this was just, you know, like I'm, I'm coming in blind essentially. And it was delightful. I mean, I'm kind of like, okay, I want like, why, why does the Baroness not have a whole series about her as a supervillainess, right? Like she's gorgeous. She's statuesque. She's ruthless. Um, she just seems like ripe for, you know, a, a villain arc. And I feel like we need more of her. Uh, also just, yeah, Mary looks, is incredible, like stylistically, like, and like as sort of a, you know, 60s spot. I mean, you said this was made in the 90s, but it's about the 60s. And, you know, I just, the styling is, is amazing. And I, so I, for one, have always sort of enjoyed the, um, you know, from a, from a, just a, you know, mass pop culture person who hasn't, read a lot of the marvel comics like I'm, i do enjoy the sort of agents of shield like the, the backstory and the lore of of the organization and so i feel like this could have been an interesting uh subject to mine a little bit further but like but like josh was saying like i've never heard of his parents doing any of this before i have no sense of like what where they come from or what what happened to them so yeah i could see this is kind of a weird little fantasy like this sort of feels like fan fiction Wolverine for years is say. Weapon X, but then later yeah. they go, he's actually Weapon 10, right? The X is the Roman numeral. Well, and it, here he gets to be Agent 10. That's kind of fun. I think that that's, that's an interesting... That was Barry Windsor Smith, right? Uh, the Weapon X story was Windsor Smith. I think it was Morrison who said he was Weapon 10, but I'd have that's to right, do my research. That's right, because then X-23 is the 23rd attempt of cloning him. Um, I will say, say, say this, this idea of, you know, um, bringing May and Richard Parker into, you know, this sort of spy lore and stuff. Uh, one of the, I think it was the Andrew Garfield Spider-Man had sort of a little bit of a backstory that they ended up cutting, like almost like a subplot that they're, 
that either his father or both of his parents were involved in not necessarily shield but in something like that cia kind of thing so i'm wondering if i mean if they they probably got a similar idea from this so the one last thing i will cover here very quickly and this is not an issue we're going to take time to do on my show there is another untold tales of spider-man uh story it's the annual 1997 from this series in the same year Spider-Man is fighting a bad guy named Sundown. It's set in the 60s. And basically every 60s Marvel character shows up in this story, from the Fantastic Four to Daredevil to Iron Man to Thor to Giant Man and the Wasp. The X-Men are there for like two pages. They're on the back cover. You can see they're like on a moving ice staircase that Iceman's shooting out and angels flying. In the issue, they become aware of the threat of sundown. They go to investigate in one of their many helicopters. And this is during the time when when Xavier's dead. And there's like two lines of dialogue. Beast goes, I fail to comprehend Cyclops. We're unaware if this situation even involves mutant kind. Why such concern? And Cyclops goes, in Professor X's absence, Beast, I'm group leader. So it's up to me to make that call. And I think we should check it out. Even if the threat isn't mutant related, our helping will show humanity that not all mutants are their enemies. And in the long run, isn't that the X-Men's ultimate mission? And then they help fight Sundown for a panel at the end. Uh, so we're not going to talk about that issue on my show, but there's your coverage if you were looking for that one to be covered. Uh, when we begin the new year, if you want more Nazi content, the trial for January is going to be the trial of Madame Hydra or Viper, who is an incredible X-Men villain character. She's the green Bond girl Nazi lady uh, that once got married to Wolverine. So you can uh, you can follow up there if you want more of Chad's commentary on Marvel Nazi shit. <laughs> I want to spend our last few minutes as we are getting ready to wrap up. It'll be kind of a short, easy episode today. Uh, Erica, I am so excited for Daredevil Gang War. I know what you can do with a female character. I love Elektra, and it's such an interesting time for her operating with a new moral code as Daredevil in New York, while Matt Murdock is still operating as Daredevil, but doesn't remember her in the Saladina Med series. Uh, there's an interesting timing for this character as a hero. Tell us a little bit about your Daredevil story coming up. So um, Electra has made a promise to Matthew that she will no longer kill. And that was uh, in the Zajarski Chichetto uh, series when she actually becomes Daredevil as well. And so she basically the last person that she killed was Matthew. She killed him so he could then go to hell and destroy the, the beast of the hand. And um, now with gang war, she is, Matthew is sort of on his own sort of almost sabbatical and his own sort of mission. And she's giving him that space that he wants and needs. And so what she's doing is she's getting drawn in as the daredevil for this giant gang war, where basically all of the baddies in New York have decided that, you know, we want to, you know, winner take all kind of thing. So they're all just either combining their forces or knocking people off the board. Um, and uh, Electra gets involved with a an assassin who is basically there to try and push her you know let's see how let's see how well this promise how how dedicated to this promise you are and just push her push her push her to see if she's really going to go over the edge my first love is x-men my second love is daredevil uh i'm a huge fan and i'm a huge fan of erica schultz in particular i can't wait to see where you take Thank this you so much. character uh erica as we're wrapping up where can people find you uh online and uh where could they follow your work 
Um, on both uh, on X and on Blue Sky, I'm Erica Schultz 42. On Instagram, I am Erica Schultz Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. And you can have, uh, you can go to ericaschultzwrites.com. I've got all the books that I've written up there. Um, and I'm pretty good on social. So if you make comments and stuff, I am happy to, uh, to reply. Eric and I text and banter back and forth on occasion. And I love hearing from you every time, my friend. It's so good to see you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank uh, you so much. Josh, I know you've got a lot going on right now and you're balancing. Uh, you are booked and blessed, but I am loving, loving, loving Blue Beetles so much. Uh, Adrian Gutierrez's work is so good from graduation day into the monthly work that you're doing. I don't read a lot of DC, but I love to read the work of my friends. So I'm like reading you and Leah Williams stuff <laughs> right now. The Blue Beetles, great, man. Uh, tell us a little bit about the work you're doing with Jaime. So, um, you know, Blue Beetle is, uh, as you may know, he's a... Uh, He's a teenage kid from El Paso that had a mystical sci-fi scarab beetle attach itself to his back. And with it, he can transform into the Blue Beetle superhero, but he's not the first. He's he's the third of this long storied line. And so some threats from the past are kind of reasserting themselves. And Jaime is learning about the legacy of the Blue Beetle, both good and bad. But um, we're having a lot of fun with it. It's pretty self-contained you know what i mean like if if um if sinestro gets a new belt buckle we don't have to talk about that in my book <laughs> um but we we have a lot of carte blanche to kind of just explore the dc universe for all of its kind of wonderful weirdness and i think it's a lot of people's only or first dc book in that way when um, i read a marvel honor when I read a Marvel book, I know my shit. I know every obscure character. When I read a DC book, I don't have the same knowledge. And your Blue Beetle keeps me knowing exactly what I need to know every issue when I read it. And it's delicious and it's good and it's so beautifully done. I really love Adrian's work. Oh, Adrian is, you know, Adrian is one of the loves of my life. He is an incredible artist. And the idea that we get to do just a mini series, which is where it started, to now an ongoing series with the same whole team with... Lucas Catoni, our letterer, and Will Quintana, our colorist, is just like insane to me. Like it's such it's such a blessing to get more than like a two issue or sixteen page backup story, and like it just feels like I don't know. I, I'm just incredibly grateful for the experience, and we have a lot more coming. So issue three just dropped when this is being recorded, uh, and I cannot wait to start talking about the next uh, arc. I love it, man. It's so good to see your face. Uh, where can people find you? And is there anything else you want to plug for December? Um, let's see. What else is going on? You, you, know, and, you, can... you and Terry have a book coming out, right? Yes. Me and the lovely Terry Blas are doing uh, a comic based off of the band of The Offsprings, most recent album, Let the Bad Times Roll. It's a bit of a departure for both of us. It's kind of a horror book. It's kind of a slasher. Um, and it's inspired by the songs from the album itself. So that was a fun creative experiment. But that comes out from um, Opus Comics in December. So it should be on your store shelves when you hear this recorded. And then, um, let's see, uh, plenty more on the horizon. I don't know what's being announced by this by the end of the year or not. But um, follow me on social media at Lost His Keys Man. I lost my keys, man. Um, and just keep track of me and my dog through that. 
It's great to see you, Josh. Thank you so much for uh, for hanging out. And I can't wait to hang out again. Uh, Levi, where can people find you and what are you working on right now? I like most artists when they come on this show, even though they're fully attentive, they're also drawing while we record because you're always so busy. <laughs> you can see there. That's like every artist I've ever had on. It's amazing that you're able to multitask. Uh, how yeah, you- I hope. Yeah, I, did, I didn't want to be rude, I, but I'm just sort of doodling as I listen. No, um, I get it. It also helps me focus if that if that uh, makes any sense. Um, yeah, so I'm actually working on finishing up a children's book right now, um, which I uh, can't really talk about much right now, but it is uh, it is another queer history book, but uh, for kids, and uh, I'm really excited about it. Uh, so that should be finished up this month. Um, and unfortunately, I don't have another any other like big projects to announce, but. Um, you know, Josh and I are hopefully going to be pitching some new book ideas here soon. I'm working on a couple of other book pitches. Um, but otherwise, I'm really, you know, for the, from now through the end of the year, I'm focusing on, you know, uh, making some new prints and doing sort of artwork for my uh, online store so people can, you know, go buy, go buy things on my shop, uh, prints and original artwork and things like that. Um, it's nice for me to be able to, like, put out, put out small pieces or standalone pieces in between these like giant years long book projects. So um, the best way to find me is just uh, using my name, uh, Levi Hastings art on Instagram and blue sky and uh, you know, the relevant socials that haven't completely fallen apart. And um, my website, Levi Hastings.com. Levi, it's great to get to know you better. It was such an honor to meet you. And thank you for coming on the show, my friend. Uh, Lastly, I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos, but the three of you are welcome to add me. Uh, My uh, my social media has been pared down. I've simplified my life. Mm. You can find Graymalkin Lane, Graymalkin underscore Lane on Instagram. Or look for me on Discord. Message me anytime on Insta. It's the easiest way to chat with me. Uh, The year is ending with the Roast of Scott Summers that I referenced earlier, as well as the joint trial of the Living Pharaoh and Count Nefaria, which is going to be a fun, nerdy ride. We are opening the year with Beast Turning Blue. And my guests, as we start 2024... Uh, are uh, Spencer Ackerman and Jordan White. So it's going to be a hell of a beginning to the new year. And uh, it, oh, only, wow. it only spirals from there. I am booked into April. Uh, everything coming out on the show, I'm so excited about. Also, after we record this, I'm going to Mexico for a week and I can't wait to shut my brain down. <laughs> yeah, where are Thank you going? You. Uh, we're going to Puerto Vallarta. I'm turning 45 oh. and uh, we have a whole group of friends renting a villa. It's going to be delicious. I can't wait. Uh, Magical. I will be back, but hopefully tan. So. <laughs> Great. Good for you. Enjoy. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be lovely. No kids even. I, uh, I can't wait. Uh, thank you, everybody, for the ongoing support. Thank you, Erica. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Levi. We will see you back here next time and then next year on uh, Grey Milk and Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help... Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane.